poetry has become as important to me as any reading and contemplating I do, which is why I'm always eager to remind you about our ongoing initiative, the Poetry Radio Project. It's a place where you can discover the poetry that so many of our guests fold into their lives. And you can also delve deep into reading and listening to the many wonderful poets we've had on the show. Check out one of my favorites that Naomi Shihab Nye read for us, Kindness. You'll also find Mary Oliver, David White, Laylee Long Soldier, and many, many more. All that at onbeing.org slash poetry. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with social psychologist Jonathan Haidt. Listen to our produced show with him wherever you find your podcasts and, as always, at onbeing.org. Um, so I'm going to take the liberty of beginning just uh, as everyone gets settled. Um, so given that tonight's... First of all, welcome. Happy that you're... Here, thank you, Paul. Appreciate that. Um, my name's Yona Shemtov. I'm the executive director of Encounter, and we're so pleased that all of you could join us here this evening. Um, a few housekeeping items. Given that tonight's conversation is going to be recorded, I'm going to ask that everyone please do something that you are not used to doing, which is powering off your cell phones. Not on silent, uh, but if you could please shut them down, that would be great. It affects the uh, sound quality of the interview. You know that buzzing that happens? So... Um, and considering your electronics will be powered down, there won't be any photography nor need to record because the interview will be available at a later date. Um, and I'm just going to ask that if you need to use the restroom at any point, that you use the back door over there, that door over there, and uh, just be mindful again that the conversation is being recorded. Um, so again, my name's Yona Shemtov. I'm the executive director of Encounter, and I'm really pleased to welcome all of you here this evening for what promises to be a really fascinating conversation between Krista Tippett and Professor Jonathan Haidt. Um, before we begin, I want to just say a few words about why it was important for us at Encounter to host this evening's conversation. Uh, we're an organization that's dedicated to transforming American Jewish engagement with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And we do that in service of hopefully transforming the conflict itself. In May of 2014, in this moment, we find ourselves in a particularly shrill moment within the American Jewish communal discourse about Israel and about the conflict with the Palestinians. In the same moment, we're also finding ourselves against the backdrop of what seems to be the collapse, yet again, of US-led negotiations in the region. And so the mood for many of us who care so deeply about the region is actually a little bit despairing. And we felt that at this moment in time, it's actually time to pull ourselves up from having our eyes on our work on the ground and try and reach to loftier grounds 
to learn from the work of scholars, to learn from those whose research may not be directly about the work that we're doing in Israel and with our Palestinian speakers on the ground, but for whose scholarship might have something to teach us about the way forward. Because we are at a moment where the way forward is not really clear, both in the region and also in this moment in American Jewish discourse. Earlier in 2013, I came across The Righteous Mind, um, Professor Haidt's book. It was actually recommended to me by Michael Hill, who um, runs the Durot Foundation. And I caught myself surprised on every page how resonant your work was for the work that we're doing. And so a couple of weeks later, it turns out that a supporter of ours, Jonathan Lapatin, was also reading The Righteous Mind, Chavruta, study partner in the book. And I decided to reach out to Professor Haidt and set up a time to meet with you. And that's really where the idea for this evening emerged as we left NYU and we sort of batted around ideas about how resonant what you were talking about in terms of the moral matrix and the five moral foundations and the divide between liberals and conservatives was for the American Jewish conversation on Israel and for the work of Encounter. Encounter was founded nearly 10 years ago by two visionary rabbinical students who really looking back created a foundation for us to break out of two echo chambers within the American Jewish community. The first of those echo chambers is enabling American Jewish leaders, rabbis, educators, philanthropists, thought leaders, clergy members, to meet with Palestinians. At that time, I think, I don't know that there were many organizations that were bringing American Jewish leaders into the West Bank in the way that Encounter does to meet with Palestinians on the ground to get a sense of what their lived realities are in the face of this conflict. And so we had Jewish leaders speaking from the pulpit, speaking at the front of their classrooms, speaking in board meetings, dividing up their philanthropic resources in the absence of ever considering what the lived realities for Palestinians are. That's one echo chamber. The second echo chamber was, much like American society in general, Jewish community um, were largely inhabiting social circles with people with whom they agree on issues, and especially on this issue. Um, and at this moment in time, we are seeing a shift from where Israel and the communities programming around Israel once was a unifying call for this community, has now become one of the most divisive third rail conversations. And we're seeing congregations pulled apart at the seams. We're seeing families pulled apart at the, th at the seams. And institutions kind of paralyzed and not really sure about how to move forward between the constituents that they have that are perhaps in your language of liberals and conservatives. And so we wanted to turn to your work and ask what might the righteous mind have to teach us about this moment in our community? What could we learn about healing the rifts within our community from your work? What could we learn about trying to drive social change forward from your work? What, at the end of the day, is the purpose of civil discourse? Is civil discourse in and of itself enough? Is that the end that we're trying to reach for? Is our goal to have a community that is nicer to each other? And for those of us that want to drive forward on social change, what is the purpose of civil discourse? Can we use civil discourse to drive forward on social change? 
So those are some of the things that our community is wrestling with. Most recently, uh, well, I sent this to um, Jonathan Haidt earlier in the day to let him know a little bit about some of the flashpoints within our community right now. The Conference of Presidents denying J Street membership. There have been people who've been invited to speak in Jewish institutions and disinvited. The lines are being drawn around where we can and can't have the conversation. And so it seems like a particularly important moment to have this conversation. And we thought there was no one better to do it than on being's Krista Tippett. So thank you for being with us and look forward to the evening's conversation. So um, thank you, Yona. It's, it's, um, it's exciting to be talking about an important subject in an important place in a room surrounded by books. Um, I like the, I like the uh, size of this room. You know, and Jonathan and I, I'm, I'm actually kind of superstitious, like the bride before the wedding. I don't like to talk before we actually start the conversation. So we're actually just laying eyes on each other. <laughs> it's, it's a little bit odd, but I'll go with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, so you're all, you'll all be part of every bit of this conversation. Um, and I want, and we are going to get to those hard places, um, but I want to start by really kind of understanding the context of your thinking. Um, we are going to have a conversation up here for maybe 40, 45 minutes. Then we'll open it up uh, for 15 or 20 minutes, and we'll bring the conversation back. As Yona said, we are taping this so that it can be a program for On Being, and that's exciting. And Jonathan Haidt has been on our list for a long time, so this was a great convergence. Um, and I think I'll just start. Um, and actually, where, you know, where I'd like to start is just with you, you're just a little bit about your background. Um, and I, I'm curious specifically whether um, there you would find traces or roots of, you know, not just your, your interest in morality, but in a sense your passion for morality um, in the religious or spiritual background of your childhood. Um, well, my, my religious and spiritual background is sort of stereotypical for my generation born in 1963 to uh, parents who were first generation. All, all four of my uh, grandparents were born in Russia and Poland, came to New York, worked in the garment industry, loved Roosevelt, uh, union organizers. Um, uh, my parents uh, moved, uh, raised me in Scarsdale, New York. Uh, I was very assimilated. They uh, would use this phrase over and over again, Americanische Kinder, uh, about my tendency to have non-Jewish friends. It just didn't seem to matter to me that much. Um, uh, and then it got even worse when I started dating. Uh, my mother was kind of upset about that. But anyway, um, so I think my my Jewish background is very secular, very assimilated. Um, I have a strong sense of being Jewish as my culture, but not as really as a religion. Uh, as a as a kid who always loved science and. Uh, you know, I, when I first read the Bible in college, the Old Testament, I was horrified uh, when I read the whole thing. And so I went through the, the, the phase that many uh, young scientific types go through. I'm the sort of person who would have been a new atheist uh, mm -hmm. if I hadn't taken a very different turn in my own research. Um, so I don't think you would find my current position to be based in mm -hmm. my but religion or spirituality. Was there, was there a sensibility about morality 
about moral foundations? Well, I was always very self-righteous, according to my <laughs> okay. girlfriends. I All mean, right. I was judgmental. I can see this is going nowhere. Um, no, but I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you one thing. <laughs> okay. I had two sisters, one older, one younger. They never really got along. They never really liked each other. Uh, so I was always able to ally with one versus the other. And I was, I've always actually been the intermediary in my family, always able to see everybody's point of view. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is that, how's that? Yeah, no, that's good. Um, okay. Um, so you studied philosophy in college, is that yes. right? And then it seems to me that you made a move, uh, a shift that our culture is, uh, is actually making, um, which is that great questions or this great inquiry about the human condition, which once was uh, reserved for philosophers and theologians, has now moved um, into, in, onto frontiers where, we're, where we are learning to understand our minds. And in understanding our minds, understanding ourselves uh, in a whole new way. That's right. That's what most excites me is I think we're all interested in our origins. Um, Everybody is interested in origin stories. Where do we come from? Why are we this way? Um, And when I first read, actually, Richard Dawkins, when I first read Mm. uh, The Selfish Gene and I began to learn about evolution, I felt, oh, my God, it all makes so much sense. This is why we are the way we are. And I remember when I was in... um, in London and uh, Westminster Abbey, I guess it was, wherever Darwin is buried, and you know, in, in England they they have the graves right there on the church, and people walk over them. And I was like, no, don't walk on Darwin's grave. So I, I felt like I, I felt as though studying the social sciences and evolution, I feel like this really we are really beginning to reconstruct our ancestor and origin story. It's very very mm-hmm. exciting, and I find it gives me a lot of compassion for us as a species because you know a lot of people love to shake their heads and say, oh my God, things are so terrible and we're such monsters. But I have very, very low expectations. My standard is, you know, we're animals. We're like chimpanzees that actually figured out how to get along amazingly well and not hurt each other, not hit each other. I mean, there's like, you know, here we are, New York City. I moved here three years ago. I grew up in the area, but I moved back three years ago. I've seen like no violence. Nobody has any violent stories. It's amazing how peaceful we are, actually. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just think just what you just said, that I feel like we are... We're coming to a place where we can have a vocabulary of considering ourselves as a species. Yes. Right? Which is right. kind of a new evolutionary phase. And, you know, having said that, that, that you started thinking about these things seriously with Richard Dawkins' The Selfish Gene, mm-hmm. the field you are part of, which is new, which has yes. developed in your lifetime, in our lifetime, is uh, positive psychology, the mm-hmm. study of human flourishing. Mm-hmm. Um, which it takes off into new directions from that's that. Right. So that's right. So that would be, I guess, part of the story is psychology um, has tended to be a very negative field in that it's especially focused on problems. Pathologies on Pathologies, and violence, yep. drug addiction, racism, all those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Those are, of course, extremely important to study. We've made a lot of progress on them. Um, but in the 1990s, Martin Seligman, uh, a psychologist at, at Penn, said uh, when he was president of the American Psychological Association, well, what about the positive side of life? Most people are doing pretty well. And when they go to the bookstore, all they have on offer are, are books by Deepak Chopra. Um, so we should be having psychologists doing research on the positive side of life. And I started doing research because I study morality and how it's based in the emotions. So I'd been studying the emotions of disgust and anger and shame. And then I started thinking, well, what's the opposite of disgust? And I started you know, what do you what do you feel when you see somebody do something beautiful or uplifting? Right. And it felt to me as though there's such an emotion, but there wasn't a word for it, at least not in the psychological language. I mean, you can say uplifted or touched or moved. Um, and I came across a wonderful passage in Thomas Jefferson. I just arrived at the University of Virginia, and he is the you know he's every, I, everywhere. I felt like I worked for the man. It was wonderful. Um, but he describes 
why it's so important to read good fiction, because the effect that beautiful deeds, beautifully explained, can have on you. He said, it does it not, uh, di- uh, does it not elevate his sentiments, uh, does not dilate the breast and elevate the sentiments, you know, sort of feeling of opening, um, uh, as much as any uh, example in real history can furnish. And he talked about how it makes us more open to possibilities. And I think this is very important for the kind of work that's done here and done in Encounter, is you know, when you can convert a, a situation of incredible hostility to one of mutual understanding, I mean, you just get chills, you feel uplifted and opened, and then new things are possible. Mm-hmm. It seems like he almost had an intuition of what's being learned in social psychology now, right? Well, Jefferson he had a was wisdom. a fantastic, yes. Right. Jefferson and Ben Franklin, we had a few founders who uh, were uh, great psychologists. Yeah. Um, all right, and I mean, I, I even think that this phrase, moral emotions, mm-hmm. um, again, you know, modernity, you know, Descartes, I think, therefore I am. Yeah. It was very bloodless, uh, and it was as though... Um, what made us human could be disconnected from our bodies and from emotions. And you're putting those things back together Mm -hmm. also in a positive way, in a very Mm -hmm. interesting way. That's right. That, I think, is one of the major intellectual trends. If you want to look at the whole history of, of academic scholarship back to the Enlightenment, the Enlightenment was a a rising up and a pushing back against theological explanations. And it was an attempt to ground our understanding of ourselves, not in revelation, but in experience and research. And early on, there were several branches of it. And David Hume is my favorite philosopher. He was a fantastic psychologist. He thought that morality is like the sense of taste. David Hume, who famously said that reason is and ought only to be the slave of the passions and can never pretend to any other office than to serve and obey them. So Hume, who was an historian and a, and, a, and a very warm, friendly man, understood that humans are emotional creatures, and we don't think perfectly logically and rationally and disconnectedly. But then you get the strand from Descartes going especially through Immanuel Kant, who was an extremely rational, analytic thinker, a very interpersonally cold sort of person, um, uh, who sends us off on this long, uh, uh, you know, long trajectory in which reason gets disconnected from human nature. And that, I think, was a dead end. Right. So, which brings us to what you are discovering and articulating. Um, So let's just talk about your kind of basic premises, um, which are reflected in The Righteous Mind and in in the speaking and writing you do. Um, So one of them, just following on what you just said, we, we kind of have had this illusion that we were primarily rational creatures, and your first premise would be that moral judgment is based mostly on intuitions rather than conscious reasoning. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. So my, um, my early research was on moral judgment. And here I was reading Lawrence Kohlberg, uh, the founder of the modern field of moral psychology, about how children develop these cognitive constructs. And it was all very, again, rational and bloodless. And you know, I, I grew up with these two sisters, and we fought every day, and morality was really much more passionate. And so I started looking into the moral emotions. Um, and I would do, at first I had this model that, well, you know, reasoning can be one input into moral judgment, and then emotion is another, and maybe they could compete. And I kept trying to get them to compete in the lab. And no matter what I did, I couldn't make reasoning stronger. If I changed emotions, I would change judgment, but reasoning never seemed to do very much. Mm-hmm. And I finally gave up on that and followed the data and said, well, you know, emotion comes first, emotion sets up the space. Whatever reasoning we do, 
we do within a space that's already structured by the emotion. So especially, you all know this when you're angry. If you're angry at your spouse or your partner especially, it's, it, it's just so obvious. Everything is so black and white. You can't see any shades of gray. And then maybe weeks later, you can have a talk in which you see it. But when emotions are at play, the emotions, they rearrange. It's like there's a work table. And they rearrange the space on which any reasoning can happen. And this is what I think the rationalists didn't get. Right. I mean, here's the one way you said this. We think we are, when it comes to moral judgments, we think we're scientists discovering the truth but actually we're lawyers arguing for positions we arrived at by other means. Exactly. And if you don't believe that about yourself, just note how true it is of everybody else and then think they think that of you. <laughs> um, so a second premise is that there's more to morality than harm and fairness. So explain what that means. So in, uh, in psychology, um, Pretty much everybody who studies morality is politically liberal, and really, is that really true? Yeah, yeah. There, I've I found one social psychologist who is a conservative. He's a friend of mine. Um, I've not found another, um, and uh, that's a whole separate discussion about the terrible things that happen. I mean, we're talking about polarization here. What happens when the academy itself becomes polarized, so that all the liberals are in the academy and all the conservatives are in think tanks in Washington? Right. So it really interferes with our ability to think and to study. But it makes for great cable television. Well, that's right? yeah, that's right. It produces right. the talking heads. Yeah, that's yeah. right, and no progress. Yeah. Um, so oh. the field. So when I entered the field in 1987, it was dominated by people who were pretty far left, and you know the whole academy in the 1970s was became very very liberal. People were it was the times. It was also people avoiding the draft in Vietnam. So lots of people flooded from the left flooded into the academy. By the time I got there, all the faculty were liberal, and so morality was basically defined as altruism, and it was especially altruism towards poor victims. So ideally, helping poor kids in Africa that is the best thing you could possibly do. So all the research was about compassion and about fairness and justice, and that's it. And when I took a course on cultural psychology from a wonderful anthropologist named Alan Fisk, and we read all these books about these ethnographies of, 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 of morality in other cultures, and people care a lot about, about food and food taboos and, and menstruating women and, and the body and all these things that I had read 15 years before in the Old Testament. And I realized, oh my god. Almost every culture on earth has this very broad conception of morality mm. in which it's not just about am I hurting you and treating you fairly. Right, a, a whole array of things that, are, that exactly. come under that category of moral. Exactly, issues of purity and authority and group loyalty. And the interesting puzzle, which is now being solved, is how did the West get so weird? And by weird, I'm not using that as an insult, weird stands for Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. Whenever you have a society that has those five attributes, the moral domain shrinks down, individualism rises up, people get more analytical. There's a massive set of changes that happen. And everybody in this room, I dare say, is to some extent weird. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, third, a third premise is that morality binds and blinds. This is the one I'm most excited about. This is the one that I feel unlocks so many of our hardest problems, particularly the ones we're here to talk about tonight. So um, if you go with me that morality is part of human nature, that it is something that evolved in us as our primate ancestors uh, uh, became cultural creatures that lived in larger groups, then these groups uh, competed with each other, and the groups that were able to hang together and cooperate are the ones that succeeded and became our ancestors. 
So if you are with me, that morality, just like you know, uh, uh, the love of our children or the sense of humor or language or all these things about us, if you're with me on that, then you begin to see morality not just as, am I nice to you? You begin to see morality as this amazing ability that binds groups together in groups that are larger than kinship. So explaining how a pride of lions hunts together, that's easy. Explaining how a nuclear family or a small group of kin hangs together or maybe fights another group, that's easy. But how are we so good at coming together? Look, probably none of you here are siblings, but you're all, you all, we all have common concerns. You form organizations. We're all members of dozens of organizations. We cooperate so brilliantly. And that's because we have this moral psychology that binds us together. It's most effective when we have a sacred value, something that we all worship or circle around. So it's clearest in religions, where the sacred value is literally God or the Torah or whatever. Um, but you'll see it in any political group, too. So on the left nowadays, it's a just in the last year or two, it's become overwhelmingly uh, marriage equality and rising, in, uh, and mar mm -hmm. and rising income inequality. Um, you know, on the right, it's long been the, you know, the family and, and America. And Those are the things we define as moral issues, That's right. primary That's moral right. issues. But, the, but keep your eye on the sacred values. Okay. That really helps you understand, and we'll come back to that mm -hmm. here, I'm sure. Um, so, I mean, c clearly there is a... Uh, I mean, clearly there's political life resonance, and clearly for all of us living in America right now in 20, 2014, there's political resonance. Um, but, but, but talk about that. Talk about how you look at uh, the collapse of, I think, civility and an ability to solve problems and to speak across difference uh, yeah. in terms of the science that you're doing. Yeah, this is, uh, um, it's the problem that I think we need to address before we can address almost any other problem in this country. Uh, the, the collapse of trust, the collapse of the ability of our leaders to work together, uh, which means that we don't solve problems that would be really easy to solve. Um, uh, because politician, politics has become more of a zero-sum game or even a negative-sum game. So the key, the key insight I want to share with people to help people think about what's going on is this. Um, we see a, a steady decline in civility, uh, and that's true. It really has happened, not just in Congress, but... Um, it's possible to trace yeah. that? Yes, it's po mm -hmm. but, and, and by civility, let's, let's keep in mind, let me, before we go into this, let's keep in mind, despite how bad things are in this culture war, pretty much nobody has gotten killed. And that is incredible. So let's pat ourselves on the back in America. You know, we, we're really screwed up, but we're not violent about it. So that is huge progress. Okay, with that said, now for the bad news. Um, with that said, um, certainly if you look at Congress, it has just slid into dysfunctionality. But here's the key thing. Things were really, really bad in the 19th century, and they were also often quite bad in parts of the uh, late 18th century, uh, the, at the time of the founders, and the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. Right. I mean, so we're coming off of a really unusual period of high bipartisanship and high civility brought about by some never-to-be-repeated events. So if you go back to the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, what do you have? You have a nation that just went through the Depression and especially World War II. And there's research showing that if, you ex if your country experiences war when you're young, I mean, a, you know, a, I mean a, a normal war, not like Vietnam, which split us apart, but an attack from an outside like, mm -hmm. like Pearl Harbor, you become more cooperative for life. So uh, my parents, who, who were so shaped as, as teenagers by World War II and their whole generation, those were the best cooperators ever since the founding generation, perhaps. You got that. 
Um, you've got, uh, we had immigration shut off. I mean, it was bad for the Jews, but at least it allowed America to develop a kind of a coherent national identity for the most of the century. Um, you had prosperity. You had all these things going on. You had, oh, technology. You had just three television networks. So right. it was a really unusual time, which led to uh, a real scrambling of the politics and low nastiness on the political front. Of course, there always was some. So to some extent, what's happening to us now is a reversion to the normal state of affairs, but our political institutions can't really cope with it uh, the way they could if we were, say, a parliamentary system where you could have all this division. But it's also not, uh, given that we in some ways do seem to be evolving in our understanding of ourselves, in our vision for the world, you know, in the fact that we live in an interconnected world and that that is that we are internalizing that in any way. Certainly our children are internalizing it. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's the way things used to be, but it's not the world so many of us want to inhabit. Right. Right. That's right. We could certainly do a lot better. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I also, uh, this, this whole discussion about, about civility is very important to me. And we started something on my program called the Civil Mm -hmm. Conversations Project. And I'm really interested in this website you have, civilpolitics.org, applying science to that. Mm -hmm. Um, I also think civility is not really a big enough word for what we're talking about here. What do you call it? Well, I don't know. I I think we have to use as many words as we can. But I mean, I think what what you're... From a branding point of view, that sounds like a bad idea. (laughs) From a what point of view? A branding point of view. From a branding point of view. I'm in business school now. I got to talk that way. (laughs) I think what you're talking about, the context of your work, is human flourishing. And I actually think that is the largest mm-hmm. context of, of the longing that we have. And, and somehow we can't flourish collectively with these kinds of dynamics um, Right, we can't flourish collectively. Um, but if you look across the political spectrum, the happiest people are the people who are on the extremes. People in the middle are less happy, less engaged, more depressed. Mm-hmm. We could flourish individually even as the country is going down the tubes. Mm-hmm. So no, I don't think what we're talking about here is flourishing. Now it's, you know, what we're talking about would lead to our nation flourishing, um, but individuals can be quite happy fighting. Anger is not actually a negative emotion. Um, Anger is a moral response, right? Yes. It's where where all kinds of moral responses begin. Um, One thing that you've talked about is uh, the importance of disagreeing constructively. Um, I don't know, do you know, well, so you say very interesting things also about how it is harder for liberals to mm-hmm. understand conservatives than it, or that liberals need to try yes, harder yeah. to understand conservatives mm-hmm. than conservatives would have to try to understand liberals. And I think that's probably a provocative statement, okay, possibly in this room. Yeah, so yeah. What, do you, what do you mean by that? Yeah. I mean, what do okay, you know so for, that so, informs so that statement? Very, very brief background. So my, my, one of my main areas of research, uh, my colleagues and I call it moral foundations theory. Um, is about these different, almost like taste buds of the moral sense. So everybody's got, everybody values compassion and fairness, whether you're liberal or conservative, everybody. Um, but then there are these three others. There's a bunch of others, but the three main ones uh, are uh, loyalty versus betrayal, um, authority versus subversion, and sanctity versus degradation. And what we find on our website, youarmorals.org, we've got data from about three or 400,000 people. What we find is that conservatives give relatively high marks to all five of those. They value all of those, whereas liberals reject those last three. That's like the foundations of racism and exclusiveness and no, you know, group loyalty, that's, that's terrible. Um, so uh, in other words, liberals build their moral matrix, their moral world on these two foundations primarily, 
And in one study that I did with uh, my former graduate student, Jesse Graham, we asked liberals and conservatives to fill out our main surveys pretending to be the other and also, pretend, and also as themselves for different people. What we found is that conservatives and moderates were very accurate at filling it out as though they were liberals. But liberals were not accurate filling it out as though they were conservatives because they just couldn't get their mind into the idea that authority is somehow related to morality. They think it's just oppression. Hmm. So that's one reason why there's a difficulty, an asymmetric difficulty. The other reason is that the media tends to be liberal, um, uh, as, as the academic world is in Hollywood. So you cannot grow up in this country without being exposed to lots and lots of liberal ideas. But it wasn't until I was about 40 that I happened to pull a book off a shelf that said conservatism on that I was ever exposed to conservative ideas. And I'm, I'm well-educated, and I'd never encountered conservative ideas. So there's a real asymmetry in access to the other side's ideas. And you very much value um, the way uh, conservatives, and I think you know this would be conservatives politically or religiously, you know, the conservative people mm -hmm. and minds uh, among us, in an important and necessary way, remind us of the what did you say? The binding foundations yeah. of society. That's that's important to you that liberals remember. Mm -hmm. That's right. That was really the eye-opener for me. I was always very liberal growing up. I, you know, I really hated Ronald Reagan, and, I, and my first memories are, uh, first political memory is uh, having a poster of Richard Nixon and my friends, and I completely defaced it. We thought it was so funny because you know, we, we hated him in our seven-year-old minds. Um, but in doing this research and, and coming to see that liberals and conservatives each have a piece of the puzzle, each under, are really perceptive about certain moral values, about the needs of what it takes to have a humane society. And if you let liberals run everything, they tend to burn up social capital. They, you know, if, I'll just tell you, suppose, suppose I use the metaphor that there's a wall. What's your first thought? Well, if you're a liberal, we've got to knock that down. Liberals don't like walls. Uh, now, of course, in the Israeli context, actually, even in the Israeli context, I imagine, it does, it probably works right there. Um, but conservatives tend to focus more on building up social structures that actually do allow us to flourish in some ways. You do mm -hmm. need order. You do need some restrictions. You do need some boundaries. So in some ways, um, what you're learning it could be experienced to be reductionist, right? I mean, it, it, it suggests that much of what we think we know and do and the control we think that we have and the <clears throat> rationality behind our behavior is illusory. But I also very much hear you saying that this knowledge itself is a form of power, mm -hmm. right? That we um, <clears throat> can know this and use that knowledge. Yes, that's right. Mm -hmm. um, the, um, uh, because you're a, a very nice woman and this conversation is going well, I won't get angry at you for suggesting that I'm a reductionist. Yeah. That's the one thing that I really do try to avoid in that uh, um, I don't think I, you are a reductionist, okay. but I no, I said I think it, it could certainly yeah. be perceived that way. Okay. So here, so I I love reductionism in that you look at how oh my God things these things we do you can explain them by biology and evolution that's reductionism, but I always pair it with emergentism. We we form these complex uh, webs and, and out of them emerge social institutions. Out of them emerges historical trends. So we are not prisoners of our genes or of our childhoods. Uh, we can, the choices we make now will change what happens to us tomorrow. So I just, so I certainly want to pair that, the mm -hmm. reductionism and the emergentism. Um, and at every point in history, every point in history is a crossroads. And uh, we can point to people uh, in recent history who blew it, who made bad decisions that made it even tougher for us now. Uh, but it's never hopeless. Um, and I do think that if we can understand this moral psychology, especially look among the Jewish community, I mean, my God, if. 
if, if Jews are being torn apart and seeing each other as the enemy, I mean, this is just crazy and self-destructive, and this, this can't go on. Uh, so I do think that um, if, we can, if we can all get a better grasp of this moral psychology, we can turn it to our advantage. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, so let's go there now. All right. Um, let's go to religion. Um, and you are, are not a religious person, but, but you, as a, as a social psychologist, very much value, uh, see a value Absolutely. in religion, yep. uh, in society. Yeah, and that makes me not unique. There are other social scientists who do, right. but it makes me in the minority. Um, so in the sciences and social sciences, um, most people are atheists, and those who are believers keep it to themselves. That you never hear a discussion of religion uh, in the academy, as far as that I've ever encountered. Um, but and I was very I used to be very hostile to religion. I thought that after reading the Bible, and I was always hostile to Christianity. Growing up Jewish, my mother. I, I noticed that you yeah. call it the Old Testament, which is very I, I Christianized. Not, I, yeah, sorry, Jew, I know. Yeah. I cringed I, well, while I was saying that. I realized, oops, yeah. I've been. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, but it says uh, a but lot. Yeah. The, yeah. yeah. Um, but, but, but I, no, I was hostile to all religions. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in doing this research on moral psychology and coming to see conservative perspectives and then looking at the social science evidence on the effects of religion, well, it's pretty clear. I mean, it's, it's a little mixed. There are some mixed findings. But the, gen- the lit reviews generally find that religion in the United States, and it may not be true in other countries, but in the United States, where we have a competitive marketplace and religions compete for adherence, they're really nice and warm and open, and they create moral communities that encourage people to not just focus on themselves. Right. And so uh, a wonderful book, American Grace by uh, Putnam and Campbell, um, uh, is, the I think, the, the, the ultimate authority on this. What they find is that um, it doesn't matter what religion you are, and it doesn't matter what you believe. If you're a part of a religious community, then on average, you're a better citizen, you give more to charity. Um, religion does bring out the good in people. Now, secular people can be perfectly good too, but mm-hmm. on average they give less and they give less of their time. So I'd like to think that I simply, as a, as a secular atheist scientist, followed the evidence and it showed me that I was wrong in thinking that religion was evil. And, and it is absolutely true that, and, and you also point out that, um, you know, when you, you talk about uh, intuition, uh, that, that, all, that our behavior is not primarily uh, consciously driven, and that's the same thing that Buddha said, and it's the yep. same thing that Saint Paul said, and right, and absolutely. Moses, and Ovid, and all of these people. So, it's absolutely true that um, that our traditions are are repositories of moral thinking and moral grappling, grappling, and have yep. brought those things across time. It's also true, um, and we certainly have this specter in the twenty first century. Uh, that religious energies mm-hmm. are at the center of a lot of the, well, you know, morally justified violence, mm-hmm. um, moral anguish. So, mm-hmm. so how do you see that? How do you explain yeah. that, given <clears throat> what you know? Because it it, yeah. it's, it seems more distressing, mm-hmm. and it, and often is it, se- it seems to be you know is genuinely more destructive. Mm-hmm when religious energies and people get involved. That's true. So that's why I qualified it by saying in the United States. Um, Religions did not evolve to, I I believe that we evolved to be religious. Uh, It's part of this uh, psychology of sacredness that we have. We're able to imbue something with sacredness so that we get bound together and can function as a unit. And so I believe that our religious minds evolved. They evolved to make our groups more effective, not to make them more loving and open and cooperative with strangers. So religion in its traditional forms was very tribal. 
Um, and I'll, you know, I'll just come out and say it. Um, you know, I think Islam has not had the kind of reformation and the kind of diversity that led. I mean, Europe went through horrible, bloody religious wars. They didn't uh, embrace uh, toleration of religious diversity because they were just so broad-minded. They did it because, oh my God, we were just killing each other. This is yeah. enough. Um, so uh, I can't say whether religion is a net positive or negative in the Muslim world. Um, um, certainly, you can have suicide bombers who are Buddhist. Um, you know, in, in, in Sri Lanka, they've had uh, you know suicide bombing on. Um, um, uh, you don't. You can get suicide bombing without any religion at all. Uh, you know, the PLO uh, was was not a religious organization. Arafat was a Christian, and um, so uh, religion often emerges in world history as the handmaiden of intergroup conflict. Uh, in the United States, I think it's been quite tamed by having this free market. Um, but I can't comment on the overall net contributions or debits or you know the costs of religion around the world. Right, but but how would you explain the fact that um, this seeming contradiction that religion mm-hmm. that oh, religions it's, are it's car- carriers of morality yeah, and also easy. that that uh, that those very same energies become most destructive. Well, if you think that morality is being nice and kind to people, well then, yeah, boy, it sure looks like a paradox. But if you go with me that, re- that morality is these many things, and a lot of it is, are you a good group member, or are you pursuing your own interests? Um, and those group interests often are about intergroup conflict. Mm-hmm. So if you go with me on this much broader conception of morality, not what you think is good yourself, but what groups organize around and then criticize each other on or kill each other for or punish their internal dissidents on. Um, you know, if you read the Quran, and I was horrified by that. I read it after 9-11. I've only met one or two other Americans who seem to have read it after 9-11. Um, and boy, is it about uh, punishing and killing apostates and people who go uh, against, the, against the religion. Mm-hmm. So um, if you think about religion as functioning to bind groups together, well then, it's no paradox. A lot of that is nasty stuff. Um, I mean, here's here's something um, from your writing that it's, it's a very striking statement. The myth of pure evil, and again, in religions are a place we talk about mm-hmm. good and evil. The myth of pure evil is the ultimate self-serving bias, the ultimate form of naive realism. That's a pretty strong statement. Mm-hmm. Oh, so you've read my first book, The Happiness Hypothesis, yes. I take? Okay, yes. very good. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so just... That book was a collection of 10, uh, it was an analysis of 10 ancient ideas. Um, and, and it turns out that the ancients, uh, as Krista was saying, it's a great repository of wisdom about human relationships. Now, they were horrible at physics and chemistry. There's no reason to read them for that. But for <laughs> psychology, they actually were fantastic. Right. Um, and one thing that you find in most of the great wisdom traditions is the idea that reality as we see it is an illusion, it's a veil, it blinds us, and enlightenment is taking down the veil, seeing things as they are, transcending dualities. Um, and that, I think, is really crucial for thinking about civility, because that's what happened to me in writing this book and in doing this research, is I was a self-righteous, uh, conservative-hating, religion-hating, secular liberal, and in doing this research over many years and enforcing myself to watch Fox News as an anthropologist would just, I gotta understand this stuff. Over time I realized, well, they're not crazy. You know, these ideas make sense. They see things I didn't see. Um, the feeling of losing my anger was thrilling. Hmm. It was really freeing. And it's the sort of freeing that you read about, you know, the way the Buddhists write about when you, you know, you let go of anger. Um, and uh, so, so 
this is, I think, a, the kind of state that you that well, groups like Encounter strive for. When you get people to actually understand each other and they let down their guard mm -hmm. and they learn something new and they see humanity in someone that they disliked or hated or demonized before, that's really thrilling. And that, I think, is a, one of the most important emotional tools we have to foster civility because once you get it started, it's kind of addictive. And I think that when you talk about something like... Uh, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, if you talk about, uh, you know, the very emotional turmoil mm -hmm. within the Jewish community, within mm -hmm. the American Jewish community, just start there, uh, where you're dealing with a, a conflict, a crisis that goes back generations, um, spirals of violence, and where there's this huge component of fear yeah. that is built into it. And among the other things we're learning about our brains, it is that when we are fearful, very hard to rise to, mm -hmm. you know, let's just say to make use of this kind of scientific knowledge mm -hmm. that we're getting about ourselves as social yeah. beings. So, you know, the question that, that Yona put before me here, I mean, you know, she talked about uh, encounter is wants to transform American Jewish engagement with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict um, doing this by bringing Jewish leadership to cross borders to meet with Palestinians in the West Bank and also convening a new kind of more civil conversation within the Jewish community. Um, but the question is, even in this kind of charged environment, you know, what are you learning uh, that can speak to a healthier communal conversation um, mm -hmm. And, right. and how can people in this country contribute, Jews in this country, right. contribute to that crisis? Right. Okay, so let's It's go kind of where the it. rubber yeah. meets the road, okay. which is All too right. mild. Uh, yeah. All right, so let's, let's start working on it. Okay. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm an ivory tower academic. I've only facilitated one, uh, one meeting in my whole life of trying to get people together across, across the aisle. Um, but okay, I will speculate based that. on... Uh, <laughs> um, um, but from what I've learned, from what I've seen, here are a few, a few pointers. One is if you accept what I was saying earlier about how our reasoning is driven by our intuitions, our gut feelings, our emotions, you can't, that's just why you cannot reason somebody to, if, if once there's a conflict, you can't use reason to change their mind. Um, so don't even try the direct route, which is let's just discuss it. Um, so once you accept that, then you say, well, okay, well, what does change reasoning? And now relationships become absolutely crucial. Mm -hmm. um, this is why it's so hard to influence people just by putting a message up into message space. And this is what all you know. All the uh, people are always interested in political messaging and crafting the message vehicle. And they always come to me for advice on this issue, that issue. I say, stop focusing on the message vehicle. Think a lot more about the messenger, because if you have somebody um, who who you wouldn't expect to uh, to say something, uh, or if you have an alliance of people. Um, uh, so think a lot more about the total situation, and you're not going to change people's mind just with reason alone. So um, bring in interesting people who uh, would be sometimes are called uh, what, unexpected validators, for one thing. Mm -hmm. um, well, what do you mean unexpected? So well, let me example, just say, yeah. I mean that's such a contrast to the way, you know, our instinct, uh, which I think I think religious communities. Um, 
uh, mo- get modeled after the way mm-hmm. we do things politically, which is we have a debate, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. we'll discuss it and we'll have a debate and we'll yeah, see what. And, and yeah. something like this it doesn't matter. Okay, no, it doesn't, so yeah, yeah it just so makes people. What did you say? You said oh, yeah, unexpected so validation. Yeah, so you know, a lot of people talk to me about, say, global warming. Um, because that's one of the main issues that the left is very concerned about right mm-hmm. now. And they're always trying to craft the message. Well, how can we use the message to appeal to their other these conservative foundations and make those conservatives change their mind? And I say, And stop. they really need them to use the language of climate change as well. Right? Uh, yeah, 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 to, yeah, to at least acknowledge that yeah. it exists. Yeah. And, and so, you know, so I say things like, well, start by... Um, Finding a military general who will talk about how this is going to be a threat to America's uh, America's ability to project force around the world. Uh, find business leaders who are preparing for the enormous costs. Find, you know, find religious leaders. Find so that's part of it. Is mm-hmm. is and I imagine I don't know, but I imagine this is the case with the Israeli state. You know, you, you, know, you find the Secret Service. You find uh, uh, military people on the uh, to, to uh, more credible as messengers on the left, I presume. Um, but. Uh, the even more important principle is, is is build up the relationships between the people that you want to do the talking, um, because we are um, um, we engage in reasoning, not to figure out the truth, but for social purposes to show our team that we're good team players. So bringing people together in a debate, people are actually not communicating with each other. They're actually right. communicating with their other They're audiences. just defining themselves over against. Right, that's right. right. Um, but if you do the long, slow work of getting people to ha- have something of a human relationship, and especially sharing food is a very visceral, primal mm. thing. Once you've eaten, mm. shared food with a person, mm. there's a deep psychological system that means you know, we are not like family. Um, so I, I think that the work of Encounter and other groups that try to forge the relationships first and then have discussions, that certainly is going to be much more fruitful. Mm-hmm. You use some really um, helpful metaphors and analogies. You talk about the moral matrix. Mm-hmm. Um, give, give us that. that. Okay. For, so, yeah, that comes straight out of the movie The Matrix. Right. So it's the... Um, uh, um, uh, what's his name? Who wrote uh, uh, Gibson? Um, the uh, uh, Gibson is the um, the author who wrote the book, The Matrix, and he dis- the metaphor, the, the idea in those books is the Matrix. But we is all a remember Keanu Reeves. Okay, okay, fine. Okay. Keanu, so yeah. he, Keanu Reeves wrote it. Let's say. Uh, <laughs> so the Matrix is a consensual hallucination, uh, and that's kind of cool, and you know the internet and all that stuff. Um, but um, it was just the perfect metaphor for the moral world that we live in. Um, morality is a consensual hallucination, and it's ever-changing. And so, you know, just looking at the liberal moral matrix, when I was a kid, it was all about race and gender, and that still is there. Um, but just, again, just not out of nowhere, but man, marriage equality and global warming, man, those have just shot to the top just in the mm-hmm. last couple of years. Mm-hmm. So you can see it constantly evolving, constantly changing, um, but it's a consensual hallucination. It defines what's true and what's not true. Um, it is a closed epistemic world. What I mean by that is it has within it everything it needs to prove itself, and it has within it defenses against any possible argument that could be thrown at it. Um, it's impossible to see the defects in your own moral matrix. Okay, so again, it becomes impossible to think beyond. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. And that's why foreign travel is so good, getting disoriented is so good, reading literature can be so good. Um, if there was great literature written by Israelis on both sides, that might be a way you know, have people read novels, really, exp- you, know, ca- you know, what is it like to be a Palestinian child in the territories? Um, uh, so we can cultivate, there are ways of it getting out of your moral matrix, but it's hard, especially in the context of any, any sort of intergroup conflict. Then it, we're just locked into it, and our goal is defend the matrix, defeat theirs. Mm-hmm. 
You know, I think a, a question that gets raised in this country, and I imagine that it might be on people's minds in this room right now, is um, that the people who most would benefit from those relationships mm -hmm. or from stepping outside or seeing beyond their matrix mm -hmm. are precisely the ones who are not going to go on the trips mm -hmm. to the West right. Bank, yeah. right? Or whatever the other examples would be. Mm -hmm. um, now, I, I think that we, in this culture, t we, we tend to actually focus on the, mm -hmm. the extreme poles and think that they are the ones who have to be convinced and we always center the debates around them and that maybe that's what we do wrong. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, how do, yeah. how do you, does, do we need those? Do we no, need those no. extremists or do we start no, without don't. them and that's fine? Yeah, so first, uh, let me be clear that while each side uh, can't see the flaws in its own matrix, there is, there is a symmetry here and left and right are similar in some ways. There are also asymmetries. And um, I'm not saying that the, that the right and left are identical here. Um, I think it is, the, so the, the right is psychologically predisposed to be more groupish, more tribal. I don't mean that in an insulting way, but one of the clearest differences between left and right psychologically is that the left is generally universalist, uh, almost to a fault, and the right is parochial, um, often to a fault. And what I mean by parochial isn't just narrow-minded and dumb, what I mean is, um, the, so we have, we have a survey at yourmorals.org where we ask like, how much do you care about or think about or value people in your community, people in your country, people in the world at large? And you know, okay, so uh, conservatives value people uh, in their nation and in their community much more than people in the world at large. And mm -hmm. you might say, well, okay, that's parochial. But what do liberals do? Liberals on our survey actually say they value people in the world at large more than people in their own country or than people in their community. So liberals are so universalist they often don't really pay much attention to their own groups. Mm. As my mother said about my grandfather as a labor organizer, he loved humanity so much that he didn't really have much time to care for his family. Mm -hmm. So, um, okay, so bring it back to, what, to your question. Uh, the right has all this psychological equipment about group loyalty and authority and sanctity especially, that certain things are pure and must be kept pure. So they do tend to be better at group binding and then not mixing. Uh, the very idea of a group like Encounter, meet people who are different from you, travel to foreign lands. Okay, that's going to appeal on the left a lot more than on the right. Okay. <laughs> and, but I guess my, my question, and let's open this up, is does it, is it okay to start with the people who are ready to make the move, right? Because I think, I think it can feel like, uh, well, you know, I, always, I often get frustrated by reading, let's just say, columns in the New York Times, mm -hmm. which are just so preaching to the choir. Right, that's right. Right, and I yeah. wonder, is it making a difference? Yeah, so I think that's a strategic consideration, which on which I can't advise. I'll, I'll just point out the possible problem with it, um, because I, I, you know, in this space, in the American culture war, there are lots of groups that are trying to promote civility and civil discourse and civil conversations, and they tend to attract people from all the way, you know, from sort of like you know medium far left to just right of center, mm -hmm. and. Um, I think it's the, probably the same issue here. So if you start with just a few people who are just right of center, what is likely to happen is they will be called like David Brooks. Oh, he's you know he's no longer Republican. He's the, so um, so if it's you just have a few people just right of center on this, they're probably going to get cut off and, and rejected. Mm -hmm. So you know you probably don't want to start with just the people who are just over the center. Uh, on the other hand, you will never get the extremists. You will never get the people um, on either side whose entire worldview depends in, on, on black and white thinking. Mm -hmm. So you need to get some people who are at least credible on the other side. 
So there's somebody who I respect a great deal, a, a conflict resolution expert named John Paul Lederach, and he comes from the Mennonite tradition, which is mm-hmm. in Christianity, a, uh, they have a, a core value of peacemaking. Mm-hmm. And he's worked in 25 countries over the last three decades, and I mean, he's very involved in Northern Ireland, he's worked in Colombia. He says something really interesting. Um, he says that we tend to focus in this country on change, move, you know, movements for change and the, the need for critical mass, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we think about the civil rights movement and we think about thousands of people on the streets. Mm-hmm. But that conflict transformation, I mean, one thing he points out is that it takes a lot of time. You said that also. It's like mm-hmm. very un-American, <clears throat> an un-American sense of time. Um, but starts with, not with critical mass, but, with, but it starts with critical yeast. Mm-hmm. And that critical yeast is about a new kind of relationship between unlikely combinations of people. Okay. And that reminds me of this phrase. What did you say? Unexpected. Uh, unexpected validators. Unexpected yeah. validators. Yeah. It's a phrase from um, Cass Sunstein. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, so let's Crit- open this up and see what's on your okay. minds. So I'm going to ask people to, um, if you have a question, to please ask a question. I'll take a couple of questions at a time. Um, But I'll ask you to make your questions fairly brief and not to make any political statements, but really to ask questions for um, John to be able to answer. Questions? Okay, I'm going to start with you, Jeff, and then in the back. John, on this notion of uh, the, your your five factors that go into morality, and I'm I'm having a little bit of a hard time getting getting over the. Uh, for for me, you talked about, I believe it was fairness and compassion as being pretty much accepted across the spectrum as as being moral values, and then you added others like uh, sacredness or purity or or authority. And it, it seems to me as if those might, I assign, uh, I think of, of authority and respecting authority as more amoral. If the, if the authority is Abraham Lincoln, then, then that's, I see that as moral. If the authority is Hitler or Stalin, I, I don't. And so I'm, I'm sort of stuck with this, I, this notion of, of a, maybe a, a broader understanding of morality. Mm-hmm. And as it pertains to this narrow issue, uh, if there is one position that is more right than, than another, uh, how do we, how, how can we be open to respecting authority if our sense is that that authority is, is wrong? Take one more. Uh, my question is um, around some of the statements you made about us being animals, which I happen to agree with, and then correlating where we are now to the 17th and 18th century, which I'm not a scientist, I didn't do the research, but to, uh, to disallow what's going on in this world technically and make the same statement seems to me be really short-sighted. So my question is, um, 
and you're talking about all these wonderful things. My question is, is as a, I'm not a Buddhist, but I meditate a lot, and I intellectually understand what meditation is about, which is to let go of all these things, which I think then would have a major contribution to these schisms. So I guess my question is, what is your thought about that in terms of the evolution of human beings dealing with these kinds of tribes and sects and all that kind of stuff? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Okay, so let's, let's talk about uh, authority first. Um, so I mean, the way, a way to think about this is, uh, so I, I, I'm, I'm being, trying to be descriptive here. What is the morality that people around the world care about? And, and I was trying to step out of my own secular liberal morality. Um, and if you think about the virtues as these excellences that we try to encourage in our children to prepare them for social interaction, and liberals and conservatives cultivate very different excellences. When I got to the University of Virginia, there were a number, a lot of the students were from Southwest Virginia, and they would call me sir, and it was hard for them to call me by first name, and they, and in, 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 in seminar class, it was clear they had concepts of, of you know, back talk, um, you, know, which, you know, growing up Jewish American, there's no such thing as back talk. If, <laughs> if, if your uncle says something stupid, you say, you know, you don't say it's stupid, but you say, I totally disagree, that's ridiculous. Um, and, so you know, Judaism, American Judaism is, is, has been more of a sort of an, an urban, rough and tumble. Um, our conversational style is very different. But many other groups are trying to cultivate a sense of self-control and self-restraint. And um, everyone is not the same. So parents have certain prerogatives. Elders have certain prerogatives. Now, you might say, that's a bad world. I don't want to live in that world. But many people think that a world in which children can say shut up to their parents, or at least can take it or leave it or sue them or whatever they want. Um, a lot of conservatives are horrified at the chaos, disorder, and disrespect in more liberal families. Um, uh, there often is a need for some sort of order, especially if a group is gonna try to accomplish something. If a group is gonna, so keep in mind, conservative virtues are effective at, at keeping the group together and making it effective. Liberal values are more effective at getting justice within the group. So, um, uh, so I think that's the that's the key here. Um, uh, let's see. What do you have another question? Well, is so you see, but I think the question is that sometimes order is is Abraham Lincoln, and sometimes it's Hitler. Mm -hmm. And are you saying maybe again in the grand scheme of things that in 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 the context of the human enterprise, the human experiment, that value which carries a lot of good is mm -hmm. sometimes going to result in a Hitler. Oh, I'm not saying people should be. I'm not saying people should be respectful of all authorities. Nor am I saying that conservatives think people should respect all authorities. Conservatives certainly now don't respect Barack Obama just because he's the president. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's which which mm -hmm. liberals perceive to be a real problem. Mm -hmm. Not, I mean, I think not respecting the authority of mm -hmm. the office. Yeah. So, in that mm -hmm. sense, I think maybe that's a value that liberals don't realize they hold, but occasionally are reminded no, not, of yeah. it. Um, Let's see how, how where to go with this. Um, uh, and I think one you know one thing that I noticed what we really on display in sort of extreme cases was Occupy Wall Street. So Occupy Wall Street was a very far left movement, um, and they were so far left that they were opposed to all forms of authority. Everybody was equal. And I went down there a few times and I watched them think about things. And what I saw so turned me off. I was very sympathetic to the movement at first. But they're so egalitarian uh, that they, they wouldn't, couldn't have any leaders. Everybody had a right to say, to speak equal to everyone else. Uh, at one point, there was a motion. They were trying to figure out what they stood for. And 
they, you know, for months they couldn't say what they stood for, and they were trying to draft a memo. And one of on one line was, "And we, you know, we reject violence." And somebody said, "Well, but you know, there are some among us who don't reject violence, and we don't want to exclude them. We're so inclusive; we want to include everybody." And at that point, and 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 so that was one thing was the 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 uh, almost the extreme egalitarianism and inclusiveness rendered them, I thought, unfit for modern American political life. Also, the lack of authority meant that they never got anything done and they're gone. So um, authority is, so complete rejection of authority leads to chaos, it leads to ineffectiveness, and it ultimately leads to the group mm. disappearing. Now on for the question down there. I, I couldn't understand the two prefaces that you made, and I actually I wasn't sure I, I don't know. I don't understand the question. Do you? The premises were. That you don't think we're animals, or you do? I'm sorry? You don't think we're animals, or you do think? No, oh. I do. Oh, okay. He does. That we evolve as humans, and oh, yeah. a, a way for us to evolve is through, uh, I don't care if you get it through Judaism, Christianity, I don't care, but the, the concepts of, of Buddhism and lack of identity and attachment mm -hmm. will allow us to be more open to the differences mm -hmm. and then bring more harmony. Mm -hmm. um, yes, I, I do agree. If, if the entire world were Buddhist instead of various monotheistic religions, I think there would be a lot less war. Yes. Right. So, so my point is, as a tactic, just like your tactics of eating together and stuff, which I think mm -hmm. are very good, uh, why wouldn't some form of meditation in a way that brings people together be a way of bringing people together as well? Could mindfulness meditation be used on a sort of an encounter-type retreat? Is that what you're saying? Or any sort of effort to foster civility, have people meditate together? Is that what you're suggesting? I'll, I'll take that as a, as a preface. If you could get everyone to do it, the research on mindfulness meditation suggests that it would work. Now, if pigs had wings, they could fly. Um, I think it would be very difficult to get the kinds of people you want to get together to meditate. It's oh, also very hard to meditate. Okay, thank you. I'm going to take uh, two questions. Oh, yeah, is the mic? Is the mic on? Sorry. I think that the mic oh, is good. on. Okay. Sorry yeah, about better. that. Okay, I'm going to take two more questions. And before they're answered, I'm going to ask Jeannie Blaustein uh, to say something. So we'll start with, actually, I'll start with you, Jeannie, and then I'll ask the questions. Um, Jeannie, you are the president of a synagogue. Uh, in New York, and it's a synagogue which has a very deep and loving relationship with Israel. And it is a tent in which there are many different voices, a multiplicity of voices. And I wonder if you could speak to how you try to create civil discourse um, in your synagogue when there are such a multiplicity of voices and some of the challenges of doing that. Um. You know, I think that the most important thing to acknowledge is that nobody has the answer to this. Um, I'm very struck by what you said, that emotions really take over. And I think we've seen in our own community that um, programming is not enough. Uh, this is a community that has one of, if not the most robust programs as relates to synagogues' relationships to Israel and the country. And yet this community has been really, um, at, at moments, quite, quite fractured and, and um, uh, really has struggled with this. 
And I think what's becoming clear to those of us in the leadership is that this takes an enormous amount of work. And that even uh, we've had many conversations with folks across the, the spectrum in the same room. And, um, and it doesn't take much for the fear to effectively wipe out all of that work. So I think um, we've learned a lot of lessons, but I, I think that uh, a focused, ongoing, relationship-oriented piece of work uh, that really addresses not the rational issues, um, and very much to your point earlier also, um, it's very difficult to get those on each extreme in the same room. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important not to only insist on that because we've seen that that doesn't necessarily yeah. make make movement yeah. possible. So your congregation has, you have people on the left and the right here in terms of Israel policy? The congregation includes uh, people who are deeply committed to uh, looking at the human rights issues and abuses in the occupied territories, as well as members who are deeply committed to the, the work of the City of David and the affirmation of, of Jewish priority in the land, and that is a spectrum. What, what percentage of your congregants would you say vote Republican? I have no idea, but it's a, I would guess it's a minority. No, but I mean like less than, less than a third probably? Yes. Okay. So, it's a, so, so at least a division within liberal Jews over Israel is going to be easier than a division between liberal and conservative Americans over Israel. One would think... Yeah. One would think, yeah. but actually this is, this is, I think, the thing that brings us here tonight is that even on the Upper West yeah. Side of Manhattan, mm -hmm. it is um, at times a very ferocious and, and painful, anguished yeah. uh, debate because, in fact, this is a group when Jews across the country are not affiliating for the purposes of Jewish right. communal life. This is a group that has come together for the purposes of yeah. sacred communal life. Right. And still. Okay, well, um, it's... it's it can be very difficult to simply come together and talk and reach agreement. What often helps is to have some sort of superordinate goal, some project, uh, some deadline, something you have to do. Um, is there any need to come together to achieve something? Higher goals uh, can often help this process. Do you have any? We have lots of higher goals. <laughs> but, but the things that may be done. And we're doing lots yeah. of things. Okay. Um, but the fact of the matter is, I think it's a wonderful case study for what, in what, in theory, should be a more cohesive community, really is struggling with this. And I think that yeah. the kind of um, concentrated work that you're describing ultimately has to be, um, has to be part of the, of the conversation. I, I, I wonder what, what about the importance of time? You know, I wonder if we, I wonder if you underestimate what is happening, because we have this American mentality that you should have one meeting or three, you know, or mm, it should take yeah. a few weeks or a few months. And this really is, this in particular, like a lot of things we're dealing with, like climate change, is the work of generations. Um, but it's very hard for us to see that and stick with it. I think that, I mean, I would agree with you, and I think in our community in particular, I mean, to be fair, this is a conversation that has been going on for many, many years. Mm -hmm. um, and it has ruptures, and then it has moments of, of kind of collaborative mm -hmm. movement together. Um, but I do think that we are in a much larger context. Mm -hmm. you know, this is not one congregation. This is one of 
a nation of congregations that is struggling with this. Yeah. I asked Jeannie to comment because I really feel that a lot of the research that you've done is really something that Jeannie Synagogue has been trying to use in a pragmatic, on-the-ground kind of way of maintaining civil discourse. But there is an, a curious schism for many American Jews who vote Democratic, mm -hmm. and yet when it comes to Israel, right. the groupiness, yeah. the loyalty, the sanctity, all of that emerges. Right. So That's you right. have that very curious combination. Yeah. Actually, I know, I know this is the question period, but there's a quote here which is just so relevant. Okay. I, hope I, can, I hope I can read it. It's from an article that was sent to me, actually, Yona sent it to me originally, uh, by uh, Yossi Klein Halevi on mm -hmm. Pesach Jews versus Purim Jews. Do, nod your head if you know this distinction. Okay, some do, but most don't. Okay, so he talks about these. The, there's these two th threads, these two strands among among America, among Jews uh, in Israel. Actually, it's more in Israel, but it's here too. So he's. It, I just love this, and it fits so well with 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 the righteous mind. He says, uh, Jewish history speaks to our generation in the voice of two biblical commands to remember. The first voice commands us to remember that we were strangers in the land of Egypt, and the message of that command is, don't be brutal. The second voice commands us to remember how the tribe of Amalek attacked us without provocation while we were wandering in the desert. And the message of that command is, don't be naive. He then goes on to say, the first command is the voice of Passover, of liberation. The second is the voice of Purim, commemorating our victory over the genocidal threat of Haman. Passover Jews are motivated by empathy with the oppressed. That's this Care and Compassion Foundation. Purim Jews are motivated by alertness to threat. That's these group binding virtues where you have to have if you're going to be attacked from outside. Both are essential. One without the other creates an unbalanced Jewish personality, a distortion of Jewish history and values. So anything you can do to convey the sense that, yeah, both sides are right. Both sides are wise to certain threats. And if, the, you know, if, if Israel doesn't give the Palestinians land or rights, it's just going to blow up. I mean, this is not, you know, and you can do, you can do both sides. But um, conveying that both sides are right and, and linking them to both, you know, both are Jews. So these are, I think, some of the steps that can at least create this greater sense of community and necessary purpose. There's some place you talked about uh, some work you've done with some of your students that what did you say that diversity was like cholesterol that we need we need the good kind mm -hmm. and the bad yeah. kind we need all we need difference mm -hmm. um, and we actually need and it's okay for for all these <laughs> I want to find it you know what you yeah, you know say what you're it yeah, yeah yeah okay so you it's know, interesting okay so you know I grew up I I, I started at Yale in 1981 just as. Uh, uh, diversity was becoming a major, major watchword of the left. And my entire academic career, it's all been about diversity, diversity this, diversity that. And what's really meant by that is racial diversity and then secondarily gender diversity. Um, and claims are made for diversity that it has all these benefits for thinking and does all these great things. Um, but at the same time, what I've observed in my academic career is when I entered, when I started school in the 80s, there were a few conservatives on the faculty and now there are almost none. So we've reached a state that George, that George Will described. He said there's a certain kind of liberal that wants diversity in everything except thought. And that's where we are in the academic world. So we have no diversity of ideas, but we have lots of diversity of race and gender. Um, and so we do need certain kinds of diversity. But the key to remember is that um, diversity by its very nature is divisive. And so what's the function of your group? If, the, if your group needs cohesion, you don't want diversity. If your group needs good, clear thinking and you, you want people to challenge your prejudices, then you need it. 
So in the academic world, we need that kind of diversity, and we don't have it. Um, that's, that was part of my point. And what's the good cholesterol, bad cholesterol analogy? Oh, so, you know, cholesterol can be good or bad, yeah. and everybody was acting in the academic world, like diversity is great, diversity is wonderful, okay. diversity is all good, but there are different kinds, and they were not actually trying to maximize the good kind of diversity. Mm -hmm. um, conservatives are openly discriminated against in admissions, mm -hmm. in, in, in everything, um, in, many, in most academic departments, mm -hmm. and th that concerns me. Okay. Does this apply to this to these kinds of questions about in a community? Yeah. Well, let's see. The what, diversity what in a community that is difficult, that is part of the problem. Yeah. Well, I, I guess I'd want to know: Are you know what are the fault lines? Are the is it like you know the Iranian Jews are on one side? Is is there any ethnic component here or not really? It's not. Is it? Like, not really. So, okay. Okay. Persians, Russians, Israelis, first and second generation are more hawkish. Right. Yeah. And um, East, Europe, East Europeans from Scarsdale. Yeah, are, yeah, dovish. Ivy League schools. I mean, yeah. Predictable. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. The sociology of this is unfortunately pretty clear. The stereotypes have a basis here. So, uh, so yeah. what does that, uh, how does that help you analyze what might be done? Yeah, so diversity is generally divisive um, and it has to be managed. Um, there is some interesting research showing that when you celebrate diversity and point it out, you split people, but if you drown it in a sea of commonality, then it's not a problem. So anything you can do to emphasize how similar we all are, uh, how much we have in common, is good. Anything you do to celebrate, look how different we are, look how diverse we are, that tends to make it harder to have any except group if you, Except trust. drowning things in commonality can also making, be making everything superficial. Right. Well, what do you want? Do you want authenticity or do you want peace and harmony? <laughs> I don't want to have to choose between the two. You, you think you might. <laughs> but, but you cannot drown, uh, you know. No, when there are policy differences as right. big as what to do about the Palestinian issue. Right, yeah, you, you can't, can't just drown that in commonality. That's right. Yeah. But what I'm saying is don't start by addressing that. Start by building the sense of our community, how much we have in common, how there have always been these two sides, and Jews okay. have to do both. Start by building all of that, um, you know, and then you can address the harder policy issues. Chris, I think it's what we call a conversation that's par of. It's it's just bland when you have yes. too much commonality. Yes. I think yes. that's what you were trying yes. to say. Yes, I, I think commonality can be boring. I, <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh no, I mean commonality of all the peripheral stuff, mm -hmm. not mm -hmm. the central. No, no, I know. So, yeah. Okay, can I see a show of hands? Questions? Was questions? Okay, let's take three, because it might be our last round. David, and you, and you. So I want to start off with an observation that I think pro-Israel in the American Jewish community is an essentially contested concept, right? We're going to be debating it mm -hmm. forever, which means that there's a long-term conversation, and there's an essential asymmetry in that conversation between tribalists and universalists and their willingness to put time into the issue and effort into the issue. And um, I find this to be a problem because um, you wind up with a lot of um, people who are very devoted to this thing. It's, it's what they do um, because they are focused heavily on the um, on parochial concerns. Mm -hmm. And the people who are universalists, they, they are right. frustrated because they also think there are other things that we want to accomplish in the world mm -hmm. and, and can't spend all of our time on this one issue. Um, and I, I feel like the, the asymmetry winds up 
in a bit of an exhaustion um, on, mm -hmm. on one side. And it also means that the people who are most passionately committed to this are the loudest and the most involved in the conversation mm -hmm. and tends to drive out people who just want to have like a regular conversation mm -hmm. and not one in which everything has huge moral edge on it. So any thoughts about yeah. how to get out of that oh, asymmetry I mean, that's problem? one of the, oh, oh, yes, okay. So I actually just wanted to request your working definition of conservative and liberal, because I feel like I've been a little bit working backwards mm -hmm. trying to figure out by how, how you characterize right. them what, what you basically mean when you say, for example, that conservatives are discriminated against in the academy. Like, what is the definition mm -hmm. of conservative and liberal? Okay. I'm so glad you brought up Amalek because that is, of course, a commandment to commit genocide. Mm -hmm. And at some point, so at this point, your redefinition of the word morality includes genocide. And so I'm wondering, yes, you know, same thing with does. purity, right? The laws of purity, yes. which are a big problem for women's, you know, the right to free movement, right? They restrict women's rights. So I guess, like, my question is, what are the stakes for you of expanding this definition rather than just saying, these are religious mores and letting those of us who think morality is supposed to be about like human rights have our word back. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Great question. Okay, should I answer now? Okay. Um, so I'll, I'll start with your, with, with your question. Um, so uh, I'm trying first to be a social scientist who's being descriptive and I am not saying what is right or wrong. I'm saying what do people think is right or wrong? And if you want to engage with other people, you've got to understand their moral value. You can't just say, well, we're right and you're wrong, and now let's talk about it. Um, so to the extent that most people in the world believe that groups matter and that their group matters more than other groups, most people believe that there are certain things that should be kept apart, uh, and they have all kinds of ritual practices to keep those things apart, and they think this has something to do with morality. Just, just, uh, just speaking descriptively, most people care about those other, those other three, the loyalty, authority, and sanctity, and you have to at least understand it. Um, do I think that, no, so I do have a normative position. I do have a, I sometimes, and at the end of the book, I, I, I do shift to it, uh, but it's really hazardous, it's really difficult to do, and here's the way I've tried to do it. Um, um, there, are, uh, there are some forms of society that lead to human flourishing, and there are others that are just awful. And I think what we're seeing in Afghanistan right now and the way the Taliban wants to run a society is horrific. Um, and most of these societies, uh, the, some of the worst ones, do tend to be the ones that, uh, that uh, perpetrate uh, horrible violence and restrictions on women. So I'm not a relativist. I don't say any society that if, if, if they believe X over there, well, that's fine. That, then they're just as good as any other. Um, I think it's an empirical question. And I think there are many, there are multiple paths to a decent society. Now. Um, I think that the general transition in history from this sort of more tribal morality that can work with no government to the one we have now, which has good institutions, it has been progress. We're better off, we live longer, there's very little violence, we can plan for the future, our children survive past childhood. So uh, I'm not, again, I'm not a relativist. I prefer your world to the world of, certainly to the world of the Taliban or any, any society that would commit genocide. Um, uh, I do want to acknowledge that a political violence is always morally motivated. It always does feel like the right thing to do. And of course, well, of course, Israel has committed political violence since the founding, um, and it felt like the right thing to do, I presume. I don't know the history, but um, um, every group that commits 
violence against its enemies thinks that it's justified and right to do it. Um, so that's all I can say is I can acknowledge your view and say that your view I think is much better, but imagine a group that treats nothing as sacred, that has no respect for any authority, everybody is an equal authority and everybody has to respect everybody equally. Um, uh, there is no sense of group loyalty, everybody just calculates what either what's in it for them or maximize overall. Such a society, I believe, simply would not get off the ground, would fall apart, would be wide open for free riders and slackers and cheaters. So my view is not that all these five foundations are equal. It is that you have to have the, the care and the fairness, but you need a little bit of the others. And I think liberals often want to set that to zero. Say, as, what as the other, said, say what the other three Loyalty, are. authority, and sanctity. Liberals okay. often want to set it to zero. And conservatives want to set it up here, and I think you know there are various. But I, I, I've come to see, I think you know, some lower setting, but there is a need for for them. And to the question of your definition of conservative and liberal, oh, yes. is that how you yes, get at that? You. Is that yes? So at least in the American context, it's become very easy in that it's now an identity. Um, 50, 70 years ago. Uh, the Republican Party had, there were liberal Republicans, there were conservative Democrats. So back then, political scientists said, well, Americans don't know what these terms mean. Americans are hopeless. These terms are meaningless. But since, since the two parties have gotten sorted, once, once Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act, the South left, the Democratic Party joined the Republican, everything got purified. It's as though these giant electromagnets got turned on in the 60s, and they've been cranking up ever since. And anything that has the vaguest left-right charge gets pulled to one side, everything gets purified. So in the American context, it can mean something as simple as you identify as liberal or conservative. Psychologically, what we find em empirically is that people who identify as conservative tend to like order and predictability. Um, they are not attracted to change for the sake of change, whereas people who identify as liberal, they like, uh, they, they, they like variety and diversity. I, I have one study where we have dots moving around on a screen. Um, conservatives like the images where the dots are moving around more in lockstep with each other. Liberals <laughs> like it when it's all chaotic and random. Uh, liberals keep their rooms messier than conservatives. So these are deep psychological differences. We eat different food, we eat at different restaurants. Uh, and this is part of the problem now, is that it's become not just an ideological difference, it's a real lifestyle difference. Um, population density is now the best predictor of voting. If you live in, a, in, a, in an enclave, if you live someplace where there's more than 800 people, 800 people per square mile, your county probably voted for Obama, and if it's below 800 people per square mile, for Romney. So, so I think that that gets at part of the confusion that uh, it's probably the simplest thing to associate conservative with Republican and mm -hmm. and liberal with Democrat. In but this country you're, now, in this country now, but you're really talking as a social psychologist about right. conservative These and liberal as two ways traits. of being human. That's right. It's, it, it, there are dimensions. So openness to experience is the main psychological trait that has been found to correlate with the left-right dimension. And so I would guess, I know nothing about the situation in Israel, but I would guess when you go out to dinner uh, in Jerusalem with people on the left versus the right, there will be a lot more sort of fusion restaurants and variety and diversity when you go out with people on the left than with people on the right. Right? Am I right about that? Okay. So, I mean, it's the psychological traits of openness to experience. We wouldn't know. <laughs> what was the, the, oh, the first question? Did I miss something? Oh, yeah. Energy to yeah, to absolutely. No, that's yeah. right. So that, I mean, that's the basic problem in, in, in all of politics is that when you have a group that really cares, you know, like the gun owners of America, a group that really, really, a minority that really, really cares is going gonna, is gonna to outweigh a majority that cares less. Um, is it going to generally be the left versus the right? 
That I, I, that I don't know. I don't know that it's a general thing. In this case, I think the right, again, you know, given what I just read, uh, the, um, the, for the right, it's a, tr it's a real existential threat. Now, of course, it is for the left, too. But I mean, the image of the alien hordes coming in, they wanted to kill us all along. They almost did it a few times. That is perhaps more motivating than the image of injustice or or other other threats that the left sees. So yeah, I think it's a real asymmetry. I, does the, I assume the majority, what percentage of the Israeli population wants a two-state solution? Yeah, so I presume it's that it's that same dynamic in Israel as it is here, right? It's just the, 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 the conservative side, the hawkish side is just more passionate. I'm sorry, the, the, but one half of the two-thirds believes the other side doesn't want peace. So, the, so there are two, there's one, okay. the, the center aligns with the right oh. because of the threat and the inability to get past that. Interesting. And it's almost a mirror image that the work of Khalil Shikaki, the sociologist in the West Bank, almost the same statistics of the people living in the West Bank mm -hmm. who want peace, who want a two-state solution, but don't think that Israel wants it or can deliver it, mm. and doesn't think their government can deliver it either. Mm. And, and that has something, it has to do with a lot of things, but it, it's also related to this echo chamber problem. Right. That right. It, it's like what we're hearing and none of, we're never hearing the whole story or being able to eternalize the whole story. So that's why you're here tonight. <laughs> What do, what, ha, what do we do about these echo chambers? What, what does your science teach you? Oh boy, what do we do about the echo chambers? That's really hard. I mean, it's especially hard in this country where yeah. the First Amendment we're means that We're all talking to people, can't... we're all talking to people who are like us. Yeah. And we're living in neighborhoods, yeah. as you said, with people who are like us. Yeah. And We've got a lot of sociology working against us here. Um, part of becoming more modern and wealthy and individualistic is that we make our life choices based on what we like, what appeals to us. So you don't just stay mm. where you were born the way people used to more often. I mean, mm -hmm. there's always been a lot of movement <clears throat> among humans, but um, nowadays, I mean, when you look at people shopping for college or jobs, well, you know, Seattle has a lot of bookstores. I like that. And my, my grad student, Matt Motel, has done research looking at millions of people when they move. Do they, on average, move to a place that's more conducive to their politics or less? The answer is more right. on both sides. So we've started to move into what uh, a phrase that the sociologist Robert Bella called lifestyle enclaves. We pick things based on these, you know, things like bookstores and versus uh, churches and gun ranges, but they end up just getting we're more and more purified. And uh, so that's a real problem. So the echo chamber, because of our residential patterns and because of technology. The echo chamber gets more and, and more closed modernity off. Modernity as a whole—that's so interesting. Well, it's freedom. The more you yes. are free and have the resources mm -hmm. and have a society based on markets <coughs> and businesses that will cater to what you want, and those mm -hmm. are generally good things. Mm -hmm. Well, if people choose where to live and who to associate with, they get ever more segregated. So progress leads to incivility, um, of a sort. It's <laughs> but again, again, progress leads to peacefulness, nonviolence, but to us being shut off from each other. Yes. Um, so you, you asked me uh, a little while ago what alternatives I offer to the word civility. Mm -hmm. And I haven't okay. come up with another word. Okay. What is it? But, but what haven't. I do, I, I, I think there's a way to, to talk about it and frame it. And so y you also speak of virtues, which mm -hmm. is, um, I find a word that's very magnetic to modern people mm -hmm. and to younger people. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, I like to talk about 
civility with grounding virtues as opposed to ground rules. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I yeah, and I, I like that. right. And I wonder how you if you think that even that kind of language. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really do think virtues is a good one. I mean, you talk about Ben Franklin's United Party for Virtue, yeah. so this has a history with yeah. us too. Um, if that might be something, you know, something that can help. Um, yeah, I think so. I think we went through, in America at least, we went through a period in the 60s and 70s when the education establishment became extremely liberal, and part of that is a flirtation with relativism and, and a resistance. It's horrible to think of, of adults telling kids what's right and wrong. What a terrible thing, that's oppression. Yeah. And so we created these sort of value-free spaces, which conveys a value, which is that there's no right or wrong, everyone decides for themselves. Uh, everyone's opinion is equal, you should say your opinion, and then you get people just, you get, uh, you get a lot of incivility. Um, I think if, uh, what I would like to see is a revamped civics curriculum in this country, I don't know what the situation is in Israel, where we teach very explicitly the long tradition of left-right. Um, we teach what each side is, you can't say right about, that's my language, but um, you teach what each side is concerned about. And you, uh, you know, very much like, you know, very much like the line here, uh, both are essential. One without the other creates an unbalanced Jewish personality or an unbalanced American civic order. Mm-hmm. Um, you need a party of progress or reform and a party of stability and order. That's a paraphrase from John Stuart Mill. So I think that we could teach in our civics classes, we could teach um, that the other side actually has a piece of the puzzle. Both sides do. We need each other. More of a yin-yang idea. Um, uh, maybe have people meditate. Maybe that would, uh, uh, that, that would help. Um, so I do think that we can try to cultivate virtues of civil discourse, and we can talk about it. And Americans are very widely concerned about this growing inability, I'm sure Israelis are too. So I think there are indirect ways that we can foster these, these virtues in young people, which might lead to more practice mm-hmm. uh, of talking when they're older. Would you say a little bit about Ben Franklin's United Party for Virtue? Oh boy, what I remember about it. So Ben Franklin, when he was in his 20s and apparently was quite insufferable and arrogant, um, <laughs> uh, you know, he became a master. You know, he was always, uh, he always had a very high opinion of himself, but he learned to hide it and to be, uh, he was, he, to master many, many virtues. Um, what I remember about it was that um, he formed with some of his buddies in Philadelphia, uh, they you know, everybody's always hated politicians. So my recollection is they wanted to say, oh, well, you know, forget the ideology. We want to bring all the good people together, all the virtuous people together, and then we will do what is best for society. Well, of course, that's what everybody thinks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, we are such hypocrites by nature. We mm-hmm. all think that we are good and they are evil. That's, you know, part mm-hmm. of the, one of the big messages. Right. So, book. I mean, I think we have to talk about virtues, like virtues of hospitality. That's right. Which also that's actually right. don't even... require you to like someone, Mm -hmm, but it's a virtue of... That's right. So I think virtue sometimes gets a bad name, especially on the left, because it's so associated with the Christian virtues and Mm. Christianity. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think if we go back to an older Greek notion where the virtues are excellences, arete, the arete or excellence of a person is, well, there are many, to be hospitable, uh, to be kind, to be uh, honorable and honest. There are many virtues of Mm -hmm. a person. So I do think that virtue ethics is the only philosophical theory that matches human nature. I'd like to see us return to talking about virtues and teaching kids virtues. I think it it would be helpful. Um, In your writing, you you really do see religion and and I think especially spiritual life as a positive. And I just, I want to ask you, 
and I feel like you you would like for that language to be used uh, more robustly. So I just want to ask you: Do, do you consider yourself what spiritual? What does spirituality yeah. mean in in your life? Yeah. So, um, so what spirit? What it means in my life is I've had moments when you know it's almost trite, but I've had moments when it seemed as though everything was connected and everything was beautiful, and when it seemed very hard to imagine being angry about anything. So we, we, we have this capacity to have these self-transcendent experiences. Um, I've had them sometimes, sometimes out in nature. Sometimes they just come over you. Uh, so as I see it, um, we evolved to have these, we evolved to have these self-transcendent experiences, which allow us to shut down ourselves and our selfish goals and to be part of something larger, be part of a group in part. Um, religions with big gods are only about 10,000 years old. So we didn't really evolve to be monotheists. We evolved to be pantheists with lots of spirituality. So one of the fastest growing parts of American religion is the group of people who say, I'm spiritual but not religious. Um, and uh, so I think that is much more open to secular folk because almost everybody has, most people say that they, have, they are spiritual in some way, shape, or form. Um, uh, and so I think that the idea that spiritual means God and you know, Jesus or, or you know, Yahweh um, is not necessarily the right way to think about our religiousness. But for you, that do, do you do you consider yourself to be a spiritual person? Is that a word you would use? No, I mean, if you press me on it, I'll say I've had spiritual experiences. Okay. But if I was to list my top twenty adjectives, spiritual would not be one of them. Okay. Um, and do you have children? Yes. So I wonder. I'd be curious about how you take this science, what you mm -hmm. learn through your science yeah. about being human, mm -hmm. and how you. Uh, you know how it flows into your daily life, but mm -hmm. also in particular, you know how you wh how oh, sure. do you, what do you think you would talk to your children about? Do with mm -hmm. your children that you might not do if you didn't weren't yeah. practicing this profession. I think so. Uh, it's been much much easier to do discipline now that I've read about conservatives. <laughs> so <laughs> um, you know, because the temptation. My children are four and seven now, and you know when they were younger. Um, you know, because the liberal, my wife, I mean, I'm, even though I'm a centrist, I'm a moderate, but by personality, I'm straight left. I'm, I'm, I've got a liberal personality. And, you know, we would never spank our children. But the temptation is always, you know, if they're crying, they don't, you know, you punish them. And the temptation is to give in or make an exception just this one time. And, um, and, and what we learned in reading this wonderful book, One, Two, Three, Magic, it's a very simple discipline technique by a guy who's a psychologist, understands operant conditioning. When your kids misbehave and you say that's one, they do it again, you say that's two, you do it again, they say that's three, and then time out right then and there, and you put them in the corner, and they have a timeout, and you just do it over and over again. And my son got it right away. My daughter, there was one day I had to give her 30 timeouts in a row, but she finally got it. <laughs> and our lives are so peaceful now. Same thing with sleeping arrangements. We see some of our I, I, more I liberal friends. I see your version of the, the tiger mom or something. Well, it's, yeah. It's just that it's, it's, allowed me, it's allowed me to talk about, say, for example, being disrespectful. Mm -hmm. I would, if I would not, if I was still liberal, I would not have used that as part of raising my children. But now the concept, it's not a big concept in our family. But at least I can talk about being respectful and disrespectful in ways, I mean, about you know, like adults. Like, that's not the right way to talk to adults. Of course, liberals can do that. But mm -hmm. I'm just saying there's a certain conservative vocabulary about order, structure, and respect that's easier for me now. Well, so your kids are, are pretty young, um, but you also have students. Mm -hmm. I mean, how do you, do you work with this knowledge that moral reasoning is less reflected and less conscious than we think it is? I mean, is, is that ever something you might point out to your children or to your students? Oh, yes, absolutely. Or to yourself? Um, yes. Uh, in fact, an interesting thing happened at NYU when I was trying to make that point, and I showed a video 
that offended uh, one of the gay students in the class because of a, there was a line in it. Um, it was a video of a research situation. I wasn't even in it. Um, but I was trying to make the point about how emotions drive reasoning. And this student objected, and she challenged me in a it seemed like a confrontational way. And I thought this was an, an offense against my you know, I mean, I, I have a right to show videos to make a point in class, and it seemed like political correctness run amok. Um, and uh, so one of the things I found about studying moral psychology is I still make a lot of the same mistakes, but I'm really, really good at apologizing now. Mm. And because, uh, you know, I was mad at her at first, and we had this real, you know, confrontation. Mm -hmm. uh, but over time, um, I, moral psychology has really helped me look at it from the other pro person's point of view. I can do that much better now. And so that I'm really good at apologizing because I've read this. And that especially helps with my wife. I still say all the same stupid things I tell my students not to say in heterosexual relationships. But again, I'm really good at apologizing afterwards. And, and, it's, and it's bigger than it sounds, right? Because we also now know that an apology triggers things in the brain. That, I mean, it really, really has effect on the other person. Well, anything that has effects is going to trigger something in the brain. But yeah. Right, you yeah. know what I'm saying. Yeah. I want to read uh, something that you wrote, um, which is very beautiful and poetic and You've kind of been called on to be the psychological expert tonight, but um, okay. you talked about, I, and I, maybe this was from your happiness book, I see this desire in my students at the University of Virginia. They all want to find a cause or calling that they can throw themselves into. They're all searching for their staircase, which is your image about our the, this capacity we develop as human beings for self-transcendence. Um, most people long to become part of something larger, and this explains the extraordinary resonance of this simple metaphor conjured up nearly 400 years ago. No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. So that's from, um, I, uh, I gave my, my second TED talk was on self-transcendence and on this, it was on the psychology of self-transcendence. Um, and actually it's a nice example of how I've tried to use moral psychology to be more effective in everything I do. So I was trying to convey this different understanding of religion to a very secular audience, trying to help people understand self-transcendence. And I, I wanted to not just do it as a lecture, especially at TED, where they really encourage you to, to use multiple media. Right. So I commissioned uh, some video artists to make these, these beautiful videos. So if you, uh, if you go to TED.com and just look up my name, you'll find a couple of TED Talks. Look at the, the one about the secret staircase. And, um, and so there's this beautiful video made by this brilliant video artist. And I, and she told me, I, I had to write the message, and then she animated it. Um, and so that was my attempt to really elevate people in my talk, I wasn't just going to talk about elevation. I wanted to really f cause it. And so, um, and it's almost a cheap way to do it. All you have to do in giving any speech is just talk about <laughs> something larger than yourself. Mm. And it's like, you know, it, it just opens something up in people. Um, and so I very deliberately did plan the, uh, the, that section at the end to, to cause it. Um, so yeah, I use moral psychology to teach moral psychology. So you, you talk about something larger than yourself, but you also, um, I think tonight, especially use the word I, right? I mean, you, you mm -hmm. talked about how you struggle with all of this and mm -hmm. learn yeah, about well, yourself. You are interviewing me, so how yes, you can, I did how, Well, yes, but a lot I, of academics yeah. don't use the word I. You know what I'm we, saying? What do they say? Yeah. Oh, well, okay. they just, they speak as though there oh, are objective a, yeah. truths that okay. they are proclaiming. Mm -hmm. um, anything else? that you would like to say um, in the context of this conversation that feels important in the sweep of your work? Um, let's see. I, and I think the, you know, the first step, um, one of the first steps 
to solving these problems is to acknowledge your own limitations. Um, studying moral psychology has made me has made me somewhat more humble. It's made me realize that um, uh, that my mind is going to jump to conclusions and they're often wrong, and I can't see that at first. Um, what's been found about the way to make an effective apology, and this is just a good way to create any sort of change, is start by saying what you're wrong about. And so in any sort of politically charged encounter, don't start off by making your case about what you're right about. Start off by saying, you know, my side has gotten some things wrong. We were wrong about this historically. You know, you, know, we, uh, you, know, you, you guys were right about that. Or start off praising the other side. Start off in that way. Um, humility... You know, your opponents could use it against you, but humility, acknowledging fault, or praising something on the other side, I mean, this is straight out of Dale Carnegie, how to win friends and influence people, but start off in that way, and then by the power of reciprocity, they're more inclined to match you. Um, and what you want to avoid at all costs is the normal human interaction of where combatants throwing arguments at each other for consumption not by the other person but by the onlookers. You want to avoid that dynamic. And so um, the power of, of apologies and acknowledgments and, and all the other stuff you need to do to prepare the ground for a conversation, that's, I guess, what I'd most want to mm -hmm. leave this group with, given that so many of you are engaged in trying to have these difficult conversations where the odds are against you, but it's not impossible. Well, Jonathan Haidt, thank you so much. And I think it's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Christopher. Thank you, everyone. Before we all go, I just want to, uh, is this on? Is this on? Can you all hear me? Okay. Uh, I was supposed to introduce you. I you were. I failed. I'm sorry. I'll introduce, my, I'll introduce myself. I'm John Lopatin, and I'm here as a, um, as a friend of, an encounter, of Encounter and as an alum of an Encounter trip. And I, um, I wanted to share with you um, uh, the, the, some thoughts briefly. When I first read uh, uh, Jonathan Haidt's book a couple of years ago, I was um, passionately interested in applying your understanding of morality um, and discussion of, of political and religious issues to the American Jewish community, particularly with regard to conflicts about, um, about Israel. And um, I'm very grateful that you've helped us to do that, um, to do that tonight. And it occurs, two things occurred to me during this, um, during this interview. One is the extent to which encounter programs, specifically with regard to the conversations within encounter among the Jewish participants, do many of the things that you were describing in terms of preparing um, a discussion so that a discussion between people who actually disagree with each other um, can move forward. And that sort of I think the quiet, quiet little secret of encounter, people think about the interactions between the, uh, the Jews and the Palestinians, which is, of course, very, very important. But you know, on, on some level, the encounter among the Jews within the group can be potentially much more volatile and is very, very, very well handled. So I think it's a model of um, how to have discussions um, when we don't start out understanding what it is that we disagree about. Second thought I had tonight that might be helpful is that um, Jews are kind of supposed to be in this business. This is a people who not only, um, who the, the rabbinic tradition is about 
discussions and disagreements that were not only recorded, but in fact canonized, and deliberately saving even rejected opinions. So that 1,500 years later, um, people could spend much of their lifetime discussing those conflicts as a, as a sort of a core activity in life. So I don't know whether to feel good about that or bad about that, because it yeah. ought to have helped us to deal with conflicts uh, within our community. Uh, and I think it's an open question about to, to what extent um, um, it has, but I, I guess in my guts I think it, it has or, or it can. And I certainly think that, uh, I've, uh, that I've experienced the way Encounter has contributed to that um, process. So I just wanted to thank you and to share those uh, thoughts with you. Marion. Hi. Um, I'm Rabbi Marion Lev Cohen, and I'm a board member of Encounter. And I want to thank, first of all, the JCC for hosting us, Krista for a really provocative and interesting interview. Thank you so much. And John, for really showing us how the moral matrix is constructed, which I think can help us think about how to have civil discourse and how not to demonize the other side. And in essence, that is the word of encounter. That is what we do. Um, I myself um, am the product of a religious Zionist home, which means that Zionism was religion in the family that I grew up in it was the only possible discourse that was right. But as I got older, I learned that there were other discourses, other narratives about Israel. Um, it was when I went on an encounter trip and stood on the other side of the separation barrier when I, rather than looking at Gilo overlooking Bethlehem, stood in Bethlehem overlooking Gilo, and for the first time really heard the narrative of Palestinians and also sat with Jews that I had never sat with before, with settlers, with people who were from B'Tselem, from all different stripes of the Jewish community. And the reason it was so powerful and so transformative was that it wasn't about reason. It was really about relationship. It was about an experience. So I'll use the word transformative because the 2000 thought leaders, rabbis, educators, and philanthropists that have gone to the West Bank with Encounter have really described that trip as transformative. So if you've liked what you've heard tonight, if you'd like to learn more about Encounter, there are staff members here, raise your hand, who are happy to speak with you uh, about the work of Encounter, how you can bring it into your community. I recommend you go on an encounter trip if you haven't been on one. It really is a wonderful experience and a, a very difficult one at times, but an invaluable one if you care about the events of the Middle East. And lastly, um, in the materials that we gave you, we would ask you if you like the work and you would want to support it financially, that the financial support makes it possible to have all these wonderful and important programs. So thank you for coming tonight. Thank you for your terrific questions and for being a great audience. Good night. Thank you.